Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And、uh, we're also joined in、uh, from Johannesburg, I think,、uh, from Dr. Chris Alden, who is the、uh, head of the Global Powers in Africa program at the South Africa Institute of International Affairs, and he's also a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics. And we are just absolutely thrilled to have you on the show, Chris. A very warm welcome to you. Thank you. I'm, I'm in. I'm in.、Uh, actually, in Pretoria, so I'm just a short. Short、uh, stone's throw from、uh, Johannesburg. Ah, my apologies. In, in, in Cobus, I think this is actually our first guest from Pretoria. So、uh, we've done Cape Town, we've got Johannesburg, and now Pretoria. So、uh, wonderful to kind of put another little thumbtack on the map there.、Uh, today we're going to、uh, talk about BRICS. Now we've had BRICS as a topic on the show for、uh, a couple times in the past few months.、Uh, most notably, you'll recall that there was the big BRICS summit in Durban, South Africa, last year.、Uh, more recently, we've talked about the different strategies that. The BRICS are taking, and we're going to talk today with、uh, with with Chris about an article that he wrote with a friend of our podcast,、uh, Yushan Wu, on BRICS public diplomacy and the nuances of soft power. And、uh, this is going to be a very interesting conversation because when it comes to soft power, Kobus, in his own right, is actually a specialist on this. So I think we're going to have a very、uh, good conversation on this. So.、Uh, Kobus, let me start with you very quickly, just to set up some definitions for our audience before we dive deep into、uh, what you know the, the weeds of, of soft power with the BRICS in Africa.、Uh, first,、uh, you know, soft power is a concept that was invented by、uh, Joseph Nye, who was then a Harvard professor.、Uh, tell us a little bit about the concept of, of, of soft power and how it's evolved today. Well, the concept, you know, originated as a, as a cold, as at the end of the Cold War, when、um, you know, and I would make the point that you, these global powers were reorienting themselves, and in the process, it became much more expensive and much more disruptive to have military、um, intervention and also aggressive economic pressure on on, on particular states. And in in that in its, in its place, he made the point that certain states possess a certain amount of popularity, maybe is one way to put it,、um, or kind of in. in Influence、um, and that、um, and that kind of influence can get other states to do what to do what they want without applying this kind of aggressive pressure. So you know, kind of it's this combination of how perceptions of a, of a state and how those perceptions can be used to get other states to cooperate with it. Since then, it's there's been all kinds of different ways of trying to widen that that concept and also question that concept.、Um, and the the case of the BRICS in Africa is particularly interesting because. Um, you know, kind of, they have varying levels of kind of historical relationships with, with with various African states, and the issue is how much can they actually get done just simply through their reputation or you know, kind of building new relationships. Okay, so、uh, it's the ability to persuade,、uh, not using hard power. And if we think of hard power as military means, even some economic means,、uh, so persuasiveness is one of the key words here. Okay, so Chris, now keeping in mind Cobus's definition, which of course is the textbook definition, I'm sure when you're teaching IR to your、uh, wide-eyed students in London at the LSE, they probably are soaking in all the traditional concepts of、uh, of what、uh, what soft power is today. But in in the current contemporary context. Are the BRICS engaging in traditional soft power in Africa, or are they doing something different?、Um, I think it's that they're one in rhetorical terms. They've certainly embraced the idea. In fact, for some, uh, for, for uh, uh, the Brazilians and、uh, in particular, but but also China, 
and the, the others, they would like to project, they like the idea of soft power, they, a power, the exercise of, of a form of influence which doesn't require the, the both in, in terms of mobilizing um, material resources and, and uh, being a bull in the china shop, rather convince people. Convince them that that of your ideas through shared values and what have you. So I think they're quite uh, enamored of it, and they've and and I think the Chinese have gone further than most of the BRICS countries in trying to implement it as as an approach uh, to to uh, continental politics and 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 playing a role a greater role. Uh, on the continent uh, more generally. Yeah, you say they like it, and and something tells me that there's a certain amount of ego involved here, that you know, poor emerging market developing countries don't have the resources to engage in public diplomacy and soft power for the most part. That's a, a pretty broad statement, but generally it's true. So all of a sudden a country emerges into a new status. It has a little bit of extra cash. It decides it wants to kind of put its television networks around the world. It wants to set up language institutes around the world, and it makes it feel better about itself. The question that Kobus and I have been talking about for several years now, actually, is do any of these programs actually bring back any returns that are measurable in any way? So China has Confucius Institutes all over the world. Sure, they may train you know, a couple hundred people to speak Chinese, maybe a thousand, a couple thousand at the most in any one. They've invested you know, a billion dollars into CCTV, yet we don't know if there's any you know, uptick in ratings because they don't do ratings in Africa. So I guess I question the the concept of public diplomacy in that way because it may it may make them feel good, but does it actually do anything? I think that that in order to um, at least public diplomacy, I would distinguish to a certain extent from soft power. Public diplomacy is a set of state-led initiatives, which or semi-state, mere state initiatives, which have particular aims of of crafting a relationship with societies towards targets, if you like, a society, a state is targeted. And, and uh, so a, Confucius, a Confucian Institute, or for that matter, if it's Germany, a Goethe Institute is set up to, to serve as a, a, a hub for um, cultural engagement with, with uh, the society in which it's inserted. Um, you're, you're betting on the long game with this stuff. You're suggesting uh, uh, perhaps the most successful form of soft power we've seen are, are the, um, uh, in the U.S. context, the Fulbright programs, which educated a generation of, of uh, uh, policy, people who became policymakers, who uh, they studied in the 80s and they, in the 1990s, they took offices in places like Argentina and the like and implemented uh, a new set of, of policies which reflected, generally speaking, uh, U.S. interests. You're not going to see immediate results. If you see it in such an instrumental way, I think you're mis- one misreads the, the purpose of soft power. Mm-hmm. An additional comment, however, would be that uh, for governments, they, they, they may want to see those immediate results, as you're saying. And, and it's much more, you know, this is a subtle process. It's, it's, it's something where you, uh, you've, values do not become internalized overnight. They're part of a, a, a longer engagement with with those ideas. Um, yeah. So I think that that 
that's an interesting. That's a very fair point in terms of in response to my critique, Kobus. Let me let me come to you about from the the academic journal that you edited last year. And one of the most interesting and salient points that you brought up in this was the the definition of soft power. Now, in the West, we focus in on the concepts around uh, media, culture, uh, even to some extent, entertainment. We talk a lot about the power of, of of Bollywood and Hollywood of being an extension of American and Indian soft power, for example. But in your in, in the journal, and I think this might even be a piece that you wrote. No, you edited actually. Uh, you talk about the the role of economy in soft power, and that the Chinese, as an economic example, are actually exuding a form of soft power, and that's outside of the bounds of the traditional definition uh, that we we've heard from and from Joseph Nye and others. But yet, it may have some resonance in Africa. What's the? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the this was um, work done um, by Yaroslav Jura, um, a, a Polish researcher, and he he uh, you know tested the way that that different different aspects of reporting about China, different subjects were treated in in uh, different um, African media markets, and and he made the point that um, that what actually happened was that traditional soft traditional um, areas of soft power, um, like for example sports exchange or cultural exchange actually received very little attention in Africa um, and in this case he was particularly focusing on Chinese soft power um, so you know kind of we've arranged a ping, this ping pong exchange for example or uh, you know a Confucius Institute in set up that's, that received very little coverage what actually did receive a lot of coverage was was just reporting about different kind of big deals big new big transactions and he made the point that it, it might be very useful to extend the Concept of soft power to also uh, cover not necessarily the the pure economic power of China, but perceptions about how how developed and strong and successful China is, and you know, and 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 that kind of um, extending the concept of soft power to to that, those perceptions will explain, uh, you know, uh, go a large way to explaining how China is then perceived and what its kind of real its symbolic power is. One one of the bigger problems for me with this with the concept of soft power is that it's been, um, you know, it's Joseph and I theorized it frequently, you know, kind of, or he theorized it in the U.S. context where it would work in in combination with hard power. You know, kind of, see, he didn't necessarily, you know, kind of say that, well, hard power is over. You know, kind of, and from now on it's soft power. It's, you know, kind of, he, he, he sees it as a, or as I understood it, he sees it as a as a kind of one of the tools. Um, and uh, in, in the paper that, that Chris and, and Yushen wrote, um, they also mentioned that the ideal combination of soft power and hard power is still very difficult to work out for BRICS states. And I actually, Chris, I actually wanted to ask you, like, how, what role do you see hard power playing in these relationships and how will, you know, kind of how do you see that kind of balance developing? Yeah, I, I think there's a, there are many ways to underscore the importance of hard power. There was the very material conditions that are there that make them an economic, noticeable on the economic stage. I mean, Burkina Faso doesn't have the material uh, conditions, and so there may be lively cultural dimensions going on there, but it doesn't have much reach broadly. It's, you need that 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 condition as, a, as an economic starting point. There, there. This, a further manifestation is soft power tools. Uh, you've talked about the opening up of, of um, CCTV or, or the production of, say, Brazilian soap operas. Um, 
and these sort of things, India Bollywood, all of these things are the products of, of uh, investments and you know the infrastructure of the entertainment industry or the infrastructure of of of, of um, cre- creating a, go- a global image around uh, one's own society and the values that inform it and the like. So that that material, it is they are interlinked. Turning it into an instrument, I mean, this is the difference between the soft power versus public diplomacy. Soft power may be a broader condition in which you operate. Everybody knows Brazil, uh, samba, football, etc. But turning that general idea into a a, 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 um, a tool to make gains in foreign policy terms or in economic terms become is, is a much more daunting and, and, and complex task. And often, perhaps you could argue it's a task of limited value. You can only you can only go so far with that. With once you try to use the hand of the state to mobilize resources around. I would contrast two things: Confucian Institutes with Chinese New Year. Chinese New Year is, is draws people to them. In, in Johannesburg, we'll have the Chinese New Year, and people will, from all walks of life, will, will attend and enjoy these features of Chinese culture. It's Confucian institutes are much less able to to they're not don't have that same power of attraction. It, it, it doesn't. It's mm-hmm. some are interested, but it's a, you know very self-selected. It doesn't have that. Whereas. Uh, uh, whereas the society here in South Africa is engaging with that and of its own, making choices to um, participate in in the uh, uh, the values that are underlying the Chinese New Year uh, celebration and the like. So I, I'm not sure I got fully yeah. to, where, to, to where you wanted me to go. But that's, no, that, that, I, that, I think that, it's uh, a new, you bring up both of you bring up interesting points. And, and Chris, I want to kind of take one of Cobus's points and kind of get your feedback on it, which is this hmm. idea of you know, the perception of a country. And so you talk about, for example, Chinese New Year. We talk about the investments in uh, soft power, which then may have, uh, may, may, may be the foundation for public diplomacy to build upon, but not are necessarily correlated. So the Pew organization every year does a global survey, a vast global survey, and I think it's one of the largest of its kind. And consistently, China ranks uh, as among the least popular countries in the world. Uh, and the United States, interestingly enough, despite the fact that it's had a number of political and military uh, engagements in Africa that haven't always been positive for Africans, still remains very, very high. And so people attribute that to media and, and just a general good feeling that might be residual with the United States. I guess my question is, though, is that all of the investments in soft power that the Chinese may make in Africa, can they be overwhelmed by a political system um, that can be at times quite hostile? I mean, just this week alone, uh, you know, Xu Zhiyong, who is a legal activist and scholar, was sentenced to four years in prison, which is a very harsh sentence. Um, for trying to uncover corruption in China. And that dominates so much of the headlines. So I guess when we look at China's human rights problems, when we look at the authoritarianism that goes on there, does that overwhelm all of the public diplomacy and the soft power initiatives that it's doing across the continent? Because we're seeing that at least evidenced by these low ratings around the world in in the Pew surveys. I mean, my guess, this is sort of speaking off the cuff, but my guess is that it, it becomes a core challenge uh, it, for, in, for China to convey its understanding, of, uh, to convey an explanation as to uh, if this is seen as negative, uh, as to why, this, uh, why the state 
behaves in a certain way, that why the state is a certain way, in the same way that the United States has to explain uh, the negative fallout from the Iraq war and those kinds of things. So I think these become the kind of challenges of, and, 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 it, and its expression of the depth to which soft power has meaningfully been integrated into local society. I would take you to, to, to task, though, on one dimension of this, which is I think that, that China has a kind of soft power that is distinctive and different from Western governments, Western societies, um, when it comes to Africa. And I think that that, that is partly a, a function of it being a developing country, that as a developing country, China has... Um, there is a, a shared recognition amongst ordinary... I've heard many African... Uh, across the board, uh, you, you will get people who say pro-China things and negative things amongst African populations, ordinary citizens, and what have you. But they never say, "Gee, they don't work hard," or "Gee, they haven't done a, a, a wonderful, you know, job in terms of developing themselves." <laughs> they, there's an admiration for uh, the success of China, even if there may be very pointed critiques and concerns that accompany that success. That's a fair point. Well, I am indeed. saying, yeah. Yeah, what I'm saying is that I think China has a special kind of potential soft power uh, with with another developing region that would not be uh, would not um, appeal for say Western societies. Uh, a Western society will will critique the pollution, the the, the cost of development, the etc. And, and, and the burden and the authoritarian system. These would all be features of the criticism and, and Western Westerners would say wouldn't say, I want to be, be Chinese. I don't want the Chi the Chinese dream isn't my dream. Uh, but for Africans, I think there's a much the the the, the appeal of going from uh, a uh, you know a hundred dollars a day 1978 or less than that really um, uh, per capita income and and the kind of backwardness of the economy and then in 30 30 plus years uh, uh, a global superpower on the edge of of, of of great prominence that's very appealing that in a generation you can go from you know being in the condition that China was to, to uh, the status it, it, it occupies today. And that suggests to me that there is a lot of soft power and why we see models, why we see public policymakers policy uh, talking, whether they implement it's a different matter, but talking about a Chinese model of development and can we grasp that onto the African uh, uh, development experience to, so we can emulate them. I think that's a, an expression of, this soft, of, of the kind of soft power that China has specifically for Africa. Kobus, uh, you know, Chris is bringing up the point that you brought up, uh, which is the economy and, and the accomplishments that the Chinese have been able to achieve over the past generation really do stand out as a role model for, for many Africans. So something, a very different set of parameters that maybe the West is looking at and that the Africans and Chinese are looking at. Uh, final thoughts to you. We're running short on time. Um, you know, kind of one of the very interesting points raised in this article that Chris, that Chris and Yushen, um, wrote is the, the, how BRICS as a group so far hasn't developed a collective, a much of a collective soft power. And that, and they, they suggested that, you know, kind of there, there should be, um, greater work put into intra-BRICS relationships in order to, to develop more of a shared community and then, you know, through which they can then, you know, kind of exercise this kind of influence. Um, Chris, I, you know, kind of, I actually wanted to ask you how how do you think this will work like well, you know kind of what how what would you suggest if you could adv advise the BRICS? how did how should they move forward with this 
I think it's a very difficult task because uh, um, I, I recall um, both Europe, the European Union and ASEAN have engaged in and with much more substantive institutional basis to do it on, to, to, to construct it on, have tried to develop shared identities. The EU's perhaps gone further than most, but they, in both cases, they have they have a common geographic position and proximity that can serve as a support base. We have a disparate set of countries that are linked because of a common historical position as developing nations and the like. I think it's a very, uh, a very difficult task. One of the things I would, I would suggest would be to have a BRICS Games, BRICS sporting event. That the, the, there are ASEAN games, there's Commonwealth games, you know, organizations that have different, uh, uh, such distinctive and geographically separate, can can create common points of contacts around uh, sports events or film events and those things, and those would, I think, begin a process of self knowledge exchange, et cetera, and and out of that, uh, the notion of a of an identity would go beyond rhetoric. The article is uh, BRICS' Public Diplomacy and the Nuances of Soft Power. It's written by Dr. Chris Ohm, who joins us on the show today, and also Ushan Wu, who's been on the show many times before from the South African Institute of International Affairs. It just came out in January, and so even if you're not terribly interested in what the BRICS are doing, it's an interesting discussion on the evolution of soft power and rethinking what soft power is. And as you can hear from both uh, Kobus and Chris, the, it, it's not a static concept. So we do uh, recommend that you check that out. You can go to the site website at uh, all the dots and w's just head over to sia.org.za and that's s-a-i-i-a dot o-r-g dot z-a so uh, uh, Chris what we do at the end of every show is we really want to try and connect people with uh, with with our guests and, and is there any way that uh, people can follow you either on the internet on the web on the SIA website that they can see what you're reading writing and thinking about um, I, I, I'm of a certain generation where I don't engage as much as I ought to with all of those things. But uh, um, I think if you go onto the SIA website um, uh, and uh, if you were to, um, uh, on the LSE, uh, my, uh, at the LSE website, there'll be some indication of publications and things that I've been writing nice. in, both, in both instances. Well, one of these days, you're going to have to catch up with this whole Twitter and Facebook thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, uh, been, yeah. And what, I consider myself a, a fully fully engaged with the late 20th century. I'm nice. not speed there. <laughs> well, well, we hope that, you know, when you finally make it over to the Facebook, uh, you check us out. We have uh, almost 150,000 followers. The vast majority, almost 80%, are under the age of 34. I've always said that both when it comes to Facebook and Twitter, you said about a, a previous generation. I also think that's the same when it applies to China and Africa. And people over 40 oftentimes struggle with the concepts of it, uh, burdened down by an enormous amount of uh, of old thinking. And, uh, and our Facebook page is reflective of that. So I, I do hope you'll check us out. We're at Facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Cobus and I are posting there uh, every day, actually, now. Uh, we don't even take a holiday for the most part, Cobus. So, uh, and you can notice that our, our name are in brackets when we when we comment. Uh, in addition to Facebook, Cobus, what's a good way for people to stay in touch with you? I'm also on Twitter at Stadenesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you can find me on Twitter as well at E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China-Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do is to look us up over on iTunes. We'll be back again later this week with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.